We are so thankful for those who are leading us in worship, and as we were reminded of Andrew's sickness, Troy also became ill, and so thankful for Bryson and the team jumping in and and taking over and helping. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. We are continuing our sermon series through this letter. And if you do not have a Bible, you can find this passage. We refer to it as our pew Bible, the Bible either underneath the chair in front of you or beside you on page 1009, Hebrews chapter 12. You can find that on page 1009 of the pew Bible. And just know if you do not have a Bible, please see that as our gift to you this morning. Take it home with you. Read it, please. Dig in, pray that the Lord would open up your eyes to behold his glory as we were able just to to sing together corporately. We're going to look specifically at the end of the chapter, verses 25 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12, but I want to begin reading in verse 18 for us to remind us of where we were last Lord's Day. And so please follow along Hebrews chapter 12 starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message, messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure The order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festive gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the saints of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, When they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God 
is a consuming fire. Hear the word of the Lord. So the sermon this morning is entitled simply, right from the text, A Kingdom That Cannot Be Shaken. Now, I realize that here in Texas, we don't often experience huge earthquakes like other places around the globe. The strongest earthquake recorded in Texas was a 6.0, which was, that's pretty big, uh, within the epicenter of Valentine, Texas, a little ways outside of Van Horn. I was looking at a map, kind of like by close in the proximity to Big Bend, uh, a different part of the state, and that happened August 16, 16, 1931. But I am sure if you interacted with those people who experienced that, that was a true earthquake. Now, as I was thinking about earthquakes, again, not, not hitting close to home for some, but we do have some from the West Coast and other parts that have experienced larger earthquakes, it is instructive and a good reminder for us when these things occur that really anything and everything that we may trust in outside of God would then be classified after an earthquake hits as fragile, subject to destruction. Everything I count on for happiness and prosperity can be shaken and crumbled into a pile of dust immediately in a matter of seconds when a large earthquake hits. Everything other than God and his kingdom, really, what we hear from our passage this morning, is brittle and insecure. Yet, many of us, if you're like me, struggle when we talk about being prone to wander, that includes prone to start trusting things that are weak and fragile. Things that we think will bring security, a firm foundation, and the reality is, as we will see in our text, they are brittle and insecure if it is not firmly founded upon God and his kingdom. I wanted to start there because we all need to be questioned. We all need to assess our own lives. Our hearts, so to speak, lay bare before the Lord and ask, am I trusting in other things besides you? Now, for some, you may have a knee-jerk response because you know the right answers. Well, no, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. He is my refuge and strength. That may come out of your mouth, but what happens on Monday through Saturday? If we were to analyze the full breadth of our life, would it reveal that we actually are trusting something else? And this very day need to be reminded of where our hope lies And for some, reminder that we need to repent and turn away from the fragile and the insecure and run once again to God. Now, because of Christ's work on Calvary's cross, those who were once, as Brandon said, at enmity with God, enemies of God, because of Christ's work, 
we who are once far off have actually been brought near, experienced salvation, being born again, and now have been identified not with the kingdom of the world, but actually with this kingdom that cannot be shaken. The original recipients of this letter and us today need to be constantly reminded of the kingdom that we now belong to and reminded, some of us shaken and reminded that all else will fail and understanding and joyfully relishing in the reality of what we have in Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, the original audience, they were prone to walk back, walk away and walk towards what they used to experience. These are Hebrew Christians in the old covenant because the circumstances of their lives was rough. Trials of various kinds, hardship, persecution, because of their identity in Christ. Their world didn't look so hot a lot of times. A lot of the the benefits of building a successful career and the family connections were stripped away, so to speak. And the question that they struggled with, is Jesus enough? These other things seem to be something that could fill the void. I remember what it was like. I'm tempted to go back. That was them. We today do the same thing. When the pressure of this life pushes against us, circumstances begin to get very difficult. The battle with the flesh rears its head and offers other things to be enticing, to pull us away and say, this, this will provide that security, that, that safety, that, that refuge that you long for. And if you are led according to the flesh, you will be prone to walk towards those things. And you, you need to understand that walking away from, that truly is a biblical definition of sin, God has said, this is how life should be. You love me, obey me. I know what is best for you. Your obedience testifies to your trust in me. When we gravitate towards other things that are not of him, that are contrary to his word, that is the the DNA of rebellion, of sin. And because of God's grace, we are invited back again. Christ came to die so that we would be invited back. And this whole text is saying, everything else in this life, when the shaking really occurs, will reveal what you have always had in Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Where we were last week, I want to read a little passage from Dr. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, that where we were last week was to help us, help them understand just what it is we have in the new covenant. What it is we experience even when we gather collectively for worship. He says it well, when we enter into worship, we cross the threshold from the secular to the sacred, from the common to the holy. And this means more than just setting apart an earthly gathering place, 
Christian worship takes place simultaneously on an earthly and a heavenly plane. Though it is not normally discernible to our five senses, heaven and earth come together when we join with God's people in worship. There is much more than meets the eye that is happening right now when we gather for worship as the people of God. And with our privilege to worship in the heavenly Jerusalem, our text this morning, the author issues, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, 29, issues two exhortations. One, by way of a warning, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And the other, you could say a positive admonition. Let us be grateful and worship. So in a sense, verses 18 through 24 was to help us understand, get a glimpse of the mountain that we now worship on. So I kind of got a little tongue-tied last week, and some were confused, saying, were there three mountains you were talking about? There's Mount Sinai, which represents the Old Covenant, and anybody that came close to the mountain and even desired to touch the presence of our holy God would be required by law to be stoned on the spot, even an animal. And the, the description in Exodus 19 and what we see in our passage from last week, when the Holy of Holy makes himself known and speaks, the people tremble and ask, can we not ever hear another word from him? Please give us a mediator if he's going to talk with us in any way, shape, or form. That's Mount Sinai. The law reveals who this is that we sinners cannot approach. That's helpful to understand when, in verse 22, the author says, But you, something has radically changed. It's not for everybody. Please hear this. Those who were baptized this morning, they are welcomed to approach this mountain, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Things have radically altered when it comes to experiencing communion, fellowship, and worship with this holy God. He has not changed, but our approach to him has radically changed because the work of his son. And so we get this description, but you, you are experiencing in Christ something radically different. And every time we gather, may we have eyes to see, this is spiritualized now, to behold what actually is happening on the Lord's day when the people of God gather to worship him. The fact that we can approach this holy God testifies to the grace and mercy that he has poured out through the work of his Son. That's what makes the good news such good news. Before, all we deserved was to be stoned on the spot because of our rebellion and sin. We could never stand before a holy God. 
We are condemned and justly condemned, rightly condemned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one, no one has obeyed him. No one has sought after him. But praise be to God. Christ has made a way where there was no way. He left heaven, became man, born a babe, lived the life that we could not even come close to living, perfectly obeying the Father. He didn't do that just for like a helpful exercise to look at and go, oh, now I know what I'm supposed to do. He did it for you. The only way for you to approach that holy God is by the shedding of his blood, becoming a curse that we all were, bearing the wrath that we all deserved so that we could stand before that holy God declared righteous. And please get this, this is not a righteousness of your own that you somehow just figured it out, started acting really good. We have continually and always will fall short of his glory. We are clothed with the righteousness of his son. It has been imputed to us. So when the father sees you standing before him, if you are in Christ, if he is your savior and your Lord, we now boldly stand before the, God, the father because we are clothed with an alien righteousness, meaning not ours, but someone else's, one who is perfectly righteous, perfectly obeying the Father for us in our stead. Now we approach Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's hard for us because we are physical beings, sensual, our senses, and we don't always recognize that. I would submit to you that's a lot, of, a lot of the reason why many Christians don't gather on the Lord's Day, don't think it's a priority because they don't actually understand what God is blessing us with in this gathering. There is so much more happening here than meets the eyes. May we pray and plead with God that he would let us get a further glimpse of his glory and the goodness that he has, he's lavished on each one of us, inviting us in to his family, being part of this kingdom that cannot be shaken. What a privilege. So the author says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they refused him, who warned them on earth, think again to that first mount, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So to help us understand the warning, the author makes this contrast for us. The earthly venue on Mount Sinai of God speaking and then God speaking today from the heavenly Jerusalem. His argument is that since it was a grave thing indeed to reject God under the old covenant, it is far worse to reject Jesus and thus reject God under the new covenant. Since the new covenant is so much better. As John Calvin comments, the greatness of the new covenant means that 
the more disgraceful and less excusable is our ingratitude towards God. Do you understand how things are heightened? This is a big deal that you have been lavished this grace upon you, that you've been invited into the new covenant. A lot of times we have cheapened grace. We view Jesus died, he forgives me of his sins, I've got my ticket, I can then go and live however I want, and then I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Oh, brother and sister, the stakes are raised higher here. If there was this listen to my words in the old covenant, the author is saying, how much more so when God is speaking today through his word, shall you listen and respond in obedience? Does that mean that our obedience somehow earns our right standing before God? No, not at all. Please do not hear that. But the fruit of God's work of regeneration the fruit will be a life that says in response to Jesus, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Yes, Lord, out of gratitude, I want to please you. That is the aim of my life. When we say he is our Lord and Savior, do we actually mean it? Oh, we love the Savior part. I get to escape from hell for eternity. Yes, I want that. Sign me up. He is your Lord. Every inch of your life belongs to him. You may be going, I don't know if I want that. Brothers and sisters, I promise you want that. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we read about him is that he is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is steadfast in his love. He is faithful. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I want that. I want him as my Lord. Yes, tell me what to do and I, by your grace, your help will follow. So Calvin's comments are helpful. The greatness of the new covenant means the more disgraceful and less excusable is our ingratitude if we begin to abandon Jesus. God spoke from the mountain then, and God speaks today. It reminds me of the transfiguration. If you remember, up on that mount with his disciples, towards the end of that experience, God the Father says, This is my Son whom I love in whom I am well pleased. And this is what I want you to hear. He says, listen to him. This is the voice. This is the prophet that I have raised up that was promised from long ago. This is the king. This is the one that you will follow. And so you may ask, well, we know clearly God spoke from a mountain in the old is he speaking today? And yes and amen, he is speaking through his word today. It is sufficient. It is infallible. It is inerrant. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, verse 26 refers to Mount Sinai and the trembling of the earth experienced by the Israelites that demonstrated to them the seriousness of and responsibility 
of the Old Covenant. Yet we're told in our passage this morning, this shaking was only a foretaste of a greater shaking to come. The author of this letter then quotes a passage from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. The promise God made that one day he means to shake the entire universe at the coming of his glory. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So we read the earthquake that occurred at Sinai was prophetic of what will occur when Christ comes a second time. In other words, God has promised that there is yet to come a shaking, not only of the earth, but we read of the heavens as well. In other words, this is a cosmic shaking, so to speak, that immeasurably exceeds anything that has come before. I don't know if you recognize this or want to even acknowledge it, but this is a reality that will occur. With earthquakes, you can predict them. Maybe. You may see what may be coming as, as our technology advances. You may not be able to predict them. When they hit, it is guaranteed, if it is big enough, everyone that lives in that area will be affected. Hands down, it's going to happen. Both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, humanity, our culture in particular, is quite proud of all of its accomplishments. You look across our beautiful country, you see cities with high-rises, military aircraft, tanks, warships, the economy that many think is so great, political powers, educational institutions. Oh, we think we have done so much. And there's so much pride attached to what, what these accomplishments represent. But there is one final shake where everything will be shaken. And God will at that point differentiate between what loves God, what serves God, what exists for God's glory over against all other created things that oppose him. This is a reality. This reality should actually inform how we live right now. I wonder if you even have ever thought about this reality. There are many who speak much of the first advent, and rightly so. Christ came from heaven to earth, born a babe. Christmas, huge. It seems that it kind of drops off and there's not as much talk about the second advent. For those in Christ, this is the hope of glory. For those outside of Christ, it is terrifying. Do many of us even consider the second coming of Christ? John Piper put it like this, simply put, everything that is righteous will remain and everything that is unrighteous will be destroyed when this shaking occurs. 
this cosmic shaking. To abandon Jesus and what he has said would be an example of trusting in anything that at his coming will actually be shaken and destroyed. I hope that that ratches, it, it kind of ratcheses up, can't speak, sorry, the importance of who it is or what it is that we are trusting. Do you realize in the scheme of God's redemptive plan, when Christ returns and this ultimate cosmic shaking occurs, anything that you have placed your trust in will look like such folly if it is outside of God and the kingdom that cannot be shaken. If it's money, if it's status, if it's your employment, career advancement, your relationships, please hear me. When this shaking occurs, that will all crumble. Does that mean none of that is important? Not at all. We, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. But that's the key right there. Are you doing those things, producing those things, investing in those relationships for God's glory or your own glory? Who is ruling and reigning on your heart? If it is not the Lord Jesus, you have been deceived and you are actually living for such an itty-bitty kingdom, your own little kingdom. And honestly, if our hearts were laid bare, that would reveal a lot of us. We want to sit on the throne. We want everything in life, circumstantially, relationally, to work out exactly as we see fit. What is right according to our eyes And yet Jesus is saying, there is only one Lord, one King, one who knows what is best for his children, one who is actually in reality ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father right now, and who will return. May you have eyes to see who's reigning on your throne, because one day there will be this shaking, and the revelation will be, what was I actually trusting in? And please hear me, it will actually determine where you spend eternity. This is a big deal. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The good news is that there is an offer of this unshakable kingdom, and it is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so what should our response be to this glorious truth? The text tells us gratitude and heartfelt, reverent worship. Please don't overlook the therefore in verse 28. That's the way the verse begins. It is precisely because God will shake and purge and judge that all in opposition to him will be laid bare. And precisely because only the unshakable kingdom of Christ will stand immovable and unchanged, that we in Christ should give thanks and praise God for the gift, the gift of salvation. 
I hope you did not miss that this morning in the testimony of the faith of those three individuals. They were testifying to the gift that God gave them that they did not deserve. Grace upon grace and receiving by faith what God has graciously given. Not eternal damnation, but the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. How should we respond? Gratitude and heartfelt, reverent worship. Reverence and awe. That is what must characterize true Christian worship. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. What does this mean? We should not flippantly and haphazardly approach the one who will shake the heavens and the earth. We worship him in reverence and awe. This simply means that we worship him with humility and a holy fear, not with arrogance and carelessness. We worship him as those who know that we don't deserve his mercy and grace, but have been lavished with his mercy and grace. We worship him with awe that he would choose a sinner like me to be a citizen of this unshakable kingdom. I want you to hear this. Ingratitude is often the first step away from God. If you're going, man, these early recipients of this letter, what was going on in their lives that made them want to actually return back to the old when they had Christ and all of his benefits? Why would they do that? Brothers and sisters, we are all prone to wander. We need to be looking at each other and go, why are you doing that? And holding the glorious promises and joys and benefits that are ours in Christ with one another. If you've ever wondered, why are there so many one-anotherings in the New Testament where we've got to be so involved in each other's lives? We need each other. God has designed it in such a way that we encourage and build up and sharpen one another and remind one another of our hope and our identity in Christ. Who we belong to. What we should expect to come. Brother and sister, you're losing sight of the reality of the promised hope that we have. I need you and you and everyone here to do this for me. Pastor Joel, Brother Joel, let me remind you of the hope of glory. When I'm kind of complaining and grumbling, we've been called and, and invited into this pilgrimage together. Coupled with gratitude is a life of worship that is wholly devoted. This is where I want to end. The way this passage ends, is says, it says in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. In a sense, verse 18 gives us a description of fire, blazing fire, if you remember, describing what was going on on that first mount. That was the holy presence of God. Okay, the back end, this is kind of like bookends, don't lose sight of this, God is still a consuming fire. There's something really important in that verse. For our God is a consuming fire. Do you see that there is a radical shift from the first mount to the second? How can he be called our God? 
He is holy. I am not. I don't even belong in his presence, nor could I be, or I would be completely zapped, consumed by this holy fire. Praise be to God for the Lord Jesus. He is, when we say he is our hope, he is our anchor, he is our entrance into the throne room of God. There is no other way. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you've heard that before, no one comes to the Father except through me, you've got to understand there is no other equation. There's no other religion that talks about your entrance into a relationship with God void of Christ if you actually know that, they, that he is a consuming fire. That is who he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But he is our God. Our God is a consuming fire. And when you understand what Christ has accomplished to allow that statement to be real and true for you, our God, my God is a consuming fire, there is both gratitude and a life of worship. We've talked about the corporate gathering, but all of our life, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. It actually should be a mark of our lives that it's not just filled with gratitude, but also a life wholly devoted to the Lord. I thought about a passage in Luke's gospel since we've been there in adult Sunday school. It's a little bit later on, but I think it's a good example of the kind of worship that is acceptable to God. It's the, the story in, in chapter 7 a, of a sinful woman that's forgiven. And I, I want to read this in closing and then just say a few words. I promise I'm, I'm laying in the plane, I promise. Starting in verse 36, I want you to hear this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So he invites Jesus to come and eat. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay, both could not come up with the money that they owed, he canceled the debt of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus answered, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that story. She is just like all of us. And she knew how unworthy she was. And when she was in the presence of Christ, her whole life, wholly abandoned no matter what the people around her thought, she was going to the Savior's feet and worshiping him because she knew, she knew that he was the one that was promised of old. The one who wasn't going to just be the king who leads his people or the prophet who proclaims the glorious truths of the kingdom, but Jesus the Savior the one who could actually do something for her wretched state, washing away her sins and blessing her, giving her a gift of eternal life. Salvation in Christ and Christ alone. And I went there because I wanted you to see the response of her life. Does your life respond, look, reflect, the glorious hope that you have in Christ? Does it reflect the magnitude of forgiveness that you have been given? Those who have been forgiven much love much. And so if you wonder, okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of understanding the gratitude, you know, the response of, of thankfulness for what Christ has done. But what, what does it look like to be holy? consumed and conformed and holy living for our king worshiping him not on sundays but all of life i think this is a perfect example for us this woman cared more about what christ thought than what others thought this woman understands the treasure the treasure is a person do you treasure christ above all or are there other things that stir your affections so that you're willing to walk away from him to them because you think that they're going to provide you something that will make life better? Brothers and sisters, we in Christ are part of an unshakable kingdom. But that unshakable kingdom is tethered to the king. You cannot experience eternal life, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, without treasuring the king. Do you treasure the king? Your life reflects what you treasure. When this shaking occurs, will you be ready? 
it will occur. Christ is coming back. For those in Christ, oh, there is much rejoicing. The hope of glory. Those outside of Christ, please listen. You will one day stand before the holy God that is a consuming fire that we have read about. May Christ be your all in all, your Savior, your King, like he is mine. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking. We praise you for the grace to have ears to hear and hearts to receive. We recognize that all of that is grace upon grace. In order for us to even receive today what has been proclaimed, we are in desperate need of the aid of the Holy Spirit, and so we ask for it now. Impress these glorious truths upon our minds and our hearts. Help us to understand the unshakable kingdom that by grace through faith in Christ we have received. And may it transform the way we live as your people. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.